Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. In this episode, Dr. Colin Sheeman, a thoracic surgeon at the University of Calgary, gives us a master class on his approach to lung nodules and lung cancer screening. If you haven't heard our conversation with Dr. Sheeman on direct entry surgical training and his approach to intraoperative teaching, make sure to check out that episode as well. Links are in the show notes. How do you uh, define the incidental lung nodule in 2020? So, uh... I'm grateful to talk about this topic. I think it's a hugely common problem. Um, and, and as you say, it actually has relevance for, for, I would guess, literally all surgeons, regardless of specialty. I think trauma surgeons, vascular surgeons, joint surgeons will be responsible, responsible for managing this surprise finding at some point. I don't think that's a stretch. So um, it, it's probably the most common referral to our group would be my guess. Um, and so... I would say for, for the purposes of, of this discussion, it could be thought of as a nodule picked up unexpectedly on imaging in an, obviously in an adult patient who has no symptoms attributable to the nodule. So, you know, this isn't the person with pneumonia who you see in a pacification on our imaging. This is the, the patient that you're getting ready for their rectal cancer excision or, and they have a surprise nodule. Um, and, you know, technically or typically these are three centimeters or size and less and contained within the lung, but um, those cutoffs exclude a large number of the surprise lumps we have to sort through. Um, they can be single or multiple solid or uh, this is called subsolid or ground glass densities. Um, so that's kind of how I, I would say, you know, any surprise nodule in the lung that, that isn't directly attributable to the problem that you're seeing them for, I think would fit this description in terms of how I would approach it. How common of a problem is it to see uh, incidental lung nodules and, and how many of those, let's say, uh, in the population of, of incidental lung nodules end up uh, making it to, to your office? So it's actually a hugely common issue. Um, it, it Thankfully, the vast majority uh, picked up incidentally are, are not cancerous in in some studies up to a third of chest ct scans will detect a nodule of some variety or the other um, and so it, it's it's extremely de- you know dependent on the radiologist's interpretation where they choose to put focus on things and and um so much to the to the fact that in certain places like in southern alberta for example Alain trombley and the team have worked hard to have flags triggered in the, in the radiology sites, you know, 
this is a concerning nodule. This should generate a referral to an expert. Having little blurbs at that, like that at the bottom, instead of just giving the classic radiographic description of what the nodule looks like. Um, so it, it, it's a super common problem, Amir. Obviously, I, you know the the whole concept of lung cancer screening is a bit tangential to the discussion, but uh, I did want to talk about it a, a briefly, just because. I, th I think it dovetails nicely with the, the whole concept around radiology and CT scanning everybody and, uh, and, and sort of thinking about things from a population level. Can you talk a little bit about um, where we are in terms of lung cancer screening uh, on a population level uh, in 2020 and particularly uh, in Canada and if there's any evidence behind uh, lung cancer screening? Sure. Yeah. So um, you're absolutely correct. It Lung cancer screenings, it's actually remarkably complicated in a way. Um, it becomes quite mathematical and scientific fairly quickly. I don't, I certainly don't profess to be an expert on this issue, but in brief, I would say that there's a few fairly safe conclusions that, that result from the body of literature that looks at this, this issue. And so first, I, I guess, just as background, as you guys know, um, lung cancer still remains the most commonly diagnosed cancer and is, is the leading cause of cancer death in Canada. And to put it in perspective, it's, it's easy to forget this, but more people die of lung cancer every year than colon cancer, breast and pancreatic cancer combined. And so it's still, um, despite impressive reductions in smoking, a huge societal issue. And so because of its incidence and because of its lethality, coupled with the fact that early stage disease has quite a high survival rate. It's very, very appealing to think of it in terms of a disease that's amenable to a screening strategy. And so it's been, I would say it's, it's been fairly well studied in the last decade. Um, unfortunately, chest X-ray is not effective as a screening modality. There's, there's fairly good evidence to say that. Um, and, and low dose CT scanning is, is much more sensitive than chest, chest X-ray. And there's, there's now uh, at least two large randomized trials with low-dose CT scan screening that demonstrate reduced lung cancer-specific mortality when it's used as a screening tool. And in general, these are patients that have fairly extensive smoking history. So these are targeted screening interventions, 30-pack years, and often greater than 55 years in age. And so, so in some ways, um, the science is settled. It, it it's probably effective. Um, and, and just given the sheer numbers of people involved, um, it, it has great potential for society um, such that in Canada, several societies, but, but probably most, no, most notably the, the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Healthcare advocates for lung cancer screening. And so that's all fine. Uh, unfortunately, that, that bumps up with a harsh reality is that it's extremely difficult to implement. And, and so much so that, that in Canada, it's not an exaggeration to say there are no population-based screening programs. There are many smaller ones, piloted ones, university-based ones, um, small group-funded ones. So, so I, I don't want anybody to misinterpret that. There's several programs happening in the country, but it wouldn't be a stretch to say these are largely um, small scale. Um, and the challenge is, is there, there's many challenges, but the, the challenge is 
Um, when you take that high risk cohort of patients and you screen them with low dose CT scans, a lot of them have nodules, as I've already hinted at, a lot of CT scans in general have nodules. And, and about 40% of these patients will have a nodule. And then if you really trickle down through the data, um, 96% of those are false positives. And so you have to have a fairly expert team of clinicians and radiologists and, and counselors, quite frankly, uh, surgeons, to work through how best to evaluate uh, these patients because you run a very high risk of overtreatment. And so it, it's, it's not just something that, that you can do because you buy three new CT scanners. Uh, it, it, it legitimately has to be delivered as a fairly comprehensive program, which entails you know, secondary risk prevention and smoking cessation and a lot of other elements to it. Um, and, and not, not the least of which is it's fairly stressful for patients to, to go through and, and be told, Oh, you do have a spot in your lung. And, and then, um, as you guys know, there's other incidental findings which arise in the screening world. And so, you know, to put it in perspective, it, it's, it's got a huge number of very expensive and, and fairly burdensome implications if, it, if it's rolled out. That's not to say that I'm opposed to it, by the way, the Canadian Association of Thoracic Surgeons also advocates for it, but um, it's, it's, we're still quite a ways away. I, I remember I was at a meeting a few years ago and um, the, the false positives and, and the incidental findings are so significant that uh, one of my colleagues who works at a private setting in the United States got up and said, the implementation of our screening program is the, is the best thing we've done. It, the downstream revenue that we've generated from this, from the thyroid nodules and the aortic aneurysms and the, the, the liver nodules is, is massive. And, you know, it, it was just, it was astounding to hear somebody think about it and talk about it in that way. When, when I think when you and, and I would hear that, you think, wow, that sounds dangerous. You know, like there's a lot of cost and harm and, and risk there. And so, that's kind of the current status of things um, in the lung cancer screening world. I, I mean, we could we could talk a lot about the studies and the data, but it, that's kind of the the overview. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it just highlights how complex these decisions are when you you translate them from the the randomized control trial to an actual health policy platform. It becomes very complicated very quickly. So so thanks for breaking that down for us. So let's say you get a patient in clinic that gets referred to you for an incidental lung nodule. You know, aside from the obvious uh, history of smoking, um, what other sorts of things are you asking them on history uh, and on and looking for on physical exam? Yeah, that, that's great. I, I would say, just before I answer that, um, I would say that the, the proper evaluation of a nodule doesn't need to be a big scary or problematic exercise. And, and I think the only real error that we run is, is not having the nodule formally evaluated by somebody with a bit of experience. And so if your algorithm is simply to get a, get a CT scan and, and, and refer the patient, I, I don't mean that in any way to be condescending, but that that's probably going to cover you if it isn't something you're interested in. Um, the, the evaluation in, in some ways can be fairly nuanced, although I must say it's often fairly straightforward. Um, and it's, it's largely based on the CT scan. So, so to, to answer your question, you know, the whole, the whole evaluation is really designed to determine if the nodule is cancerous. And, um, and so 
to begin when I'm first uh, encountered with the patient, you know, as you've already alluded to, the history is fairly targeted, you know, the smoking status, history of, of malignancy in general, infectious symptoms, travel to endemic areas where fungal infections can arise just in the air and, and evolve to form granulomas, such as in the southwestern United States or the Mississippi River Valley. Um, we have in Alberta a huge number of patients which winter in Arizona, Mexico, Texas, and they, they come back with granulomas. And when I worked in Ontario, we had a huge number of people that got granulomas from histoplasmosis traveling into the United States. And so um, the history is, is that those are the big things. I mean, there's we also, you know, we start to, to transition our brains into therapy mode and, and try to get a sense of their functional status. And almost always, as you, as you remember, Amir, these patients have comorbidities and you sort of start to risk stratify them in your brain. Um, the physical exam, I must confess, is fairly unhelpful, aside from just a general assessment of frailty. Um, so there's there's no, I don't think it's worth getting too concerned about that. Um, yeah, that, that's that's sort of how I begin. You know, when if you do some cursory reading about this, um, they do talk about using these quantitative models to actually risk stratify someone. Uh, into having a high risk of having a malignant nodule. Is that something that you use routinely in clinic? My, my recollection from, from being on the service was that it, it was not, but uh, I'm curious if, if you had any thoughts about incorporating a standardized uh, risk calculator into your decision-making process. Yeah, so I, I think it's very individualized uh, from a practitioner perspective. And I, and I must say that I, I very often use the quantitative predictors to assist me. And I say that humbly because I, at points in my, in my career, I did not. And I, I think I really incorrectly estimated risk just based on my gestalt. Um, and so I, there's, there's been quite a few which have been developed. Um, the most useful and accurate ones, in my opinion, are the Brock model, which is, is largely a Canadian initiative, and the Herder model. I have those on my iPhone. Um, the app can be downloaded through a variety of interfaces, but it sort of is a pulmonary nodule risk calculator. And I, and I actually use them fairly often, even in, even in patients that are unequivocally high risk. Um, so, you know, my elderly smoker with a speculated nodule, I often will punch them into the calculator just to get a sense of just how high risk they are. And, and I find that in particular, it helps me to gauge my level of worry and it's useful to show that to people. And so, you know, I, I would say that um, most experienced thoracic surgeons can look at a CT scan in a patient and decide if they're worried or not. And that, that's probably close to accurate enough. But if to tell somebody that their risk of malignancy is, you know, 90% or if it's 50%, a lot of patients will interpret that very differently. Um, so I, I use them all the time. Like I probably, probably with a third or more of my nodule consults, I see. You know, it's interesting if, if we take a, a bit of a tangent um, thought to the future with the introduction of more and more artificial intelligence, you could almost see how, you know, AI in terms of screening, not, not just for lung cancer, but in terms of almost everything. Um, it's probably the future, eh? I mean, you look at some of this oh, recent, sure. yeah, this recent AI work, and by asking a series of eight questions, they're predicting um, psychological diagnoses much better than the DSM-5. 
to a level of like 95%. When you look at, you know, the stuff we've heard at MIT with diagnosing, you know, the presence of active COVID just based on the auditory sound of a cough. Um, I don't know what that means for lung cancer, but these are all real world things that are occurring now. And the, the, the impact of AI, you know, hopefully for the good could be incredibly dramatic for screening so much of, of what we struggle with now. Oh, I, it's, it's happening. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Chad. Um, AI's ability to accurately measure and risk stratify a pulmonary nodule. I mean, there's, there's a lot of groups looking at that. It's, it's pretty impressive. I, I don't think we're going to be able to avoid that. I think it's probably going to outperform certainly guys like me, but even I, I would argue most radiologists. And, and, and that's not to say to displace them. I think it's probably just to, to complement, as I use the nodule calculators, to complement their interpretation. So while we're still waiting for, uh, you know, HAL 2000 to <laughs> interpret our x-rays and CTs, can you talk to us a little bit about um, what, what the important features are when you're looking at these nodules on um, x-ray and then obviously more importantly on the CT scan, um, what, like, so what are the things that, that you're really uh, practically looking for to help you make a decision as to whether this is a malignant nodule or not? Sure, yeah. So the plain film is, is, has its limitations, but it, is, it can be very powerful. So I think the critical first question whenever you're looking at a plain film that reveals a nodule is, what do the old films look like? Because if a nodule is new or it's growing, it's a very different scenario than one that's been there for seven, eight, 10 years. It immediately changes the entire conversation. Um, but but it, it doesn't get you super far. I think the CT scan is still by far and away the most valued workhorse part of the workup. Um, and so, you know, the, the standard, um, CT scan of the thorax um, is is really the the key investigation. And then to answer your question, there's there's a number of things that that are, are fairly revealing on the CT scan. It shows you a ton of secondary information about the surrounding structures in the chest and things like that. But as it relates to the nodule, um, you know, size trumps all. The the size of the nodule is is really its greatest predictor of, of malignancy. And sort of as a very crude cutoff, greater than eight millimeters, it should get your attention. The tiny little one, two, three, four, five millimeter nodule, those are almost never anything of major significance. And then obviously there's a bit of a gray zone between kind of five and eight millimeters. Um, and so the standard things, Amir, I, I would say, you know, the, the size of the lesion, uh, the radiographic appearance of the nodule, whether it's, it's smooth and spherical versus uh, you know, bumpy and, and speculated, um, whether it's solid versus, uh, you, know, you know, increasingly these mixed density lesions gives you an idea of the solid lesions being more common, but the mixed density lesions often being cancerous. Um, there's a few, occasionally you get lucky, there's a few features which are fairly telling for it being benign, such as calcium or fat within the nodule. Obviously, none of those are perfect, but those would be fairly good you know, that, that's probably a fairly good place to start. Um, and, and, and you can get a fairly good sense with the secondary features, the size, the speculation, the location, presence of smoking or emphysematous change 
about your degree of risk just off that CT scan. I think a, a very practical question related to this. So, you know, you've, you've looked at the CT scan, you've got the history, you put them to the risk calculator, you've got a, obviously a pre-test probability as to as to whether this is a malignant nodule or not. Where does biopsy fit into this? Because I, I think that is a question that really plagues clinicians across multiple disciplines, whether, you know, you're the general surgeon or the, let's say the colorectal surgeon, this is where I've seen it come up, you know, you've got a, you've got a nodule, you're, you're wondering, is this a malignant nodule? Is this a second primary? Uh, is this just an incidental thing? Where does, uh, in your mind, where does uh, a biopsy uh, fit into that whole discussion? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so I would say there's differences in opinion on the use of biopsy, um, you know, within the world of thoracic surgery and respirology. Um, but I, I, in general, I think it's pretty fair to say that biopsy is increasingly being advocated for in published societal guidelines and, and, and should be strongly considered for most lesions that are, are thought to be cancerous. Um, I personally try and avoid resection for diagnostic reasons if I can avoid it, especially if it's going to be something that carries any risk, like an anatomic resection, like a lobectomy or something more than a lobectomy. Um, and so I'm a big fan of, of biopsies. I don't think, you know, to answer your question as the non-expert, are you putting your neck out there by, by thinking about biopsy or ordering a biopsy? And the answer is you don't have to be nervous about that. There's not a ton of downside. So, you know, the obvious downside is, you know, there are complications from the procedure, pneumothoraces and, and, and potentially requiring chest tubes and things like that. I would regard those as, as inconvenient, to not, not, not to trivialize them, but, but they're, they're manageable problems. But, um, you know, the, the radiologists, for example, with percutaneous biopsy are so good um, that, that, you know, you're going to get an answer in, in well over 90% of patients if the nodules got any size and substance to it. Um, and it, and it's often helps like, like all the decisions we make in medicine, they're, they're based upon, you know, trying to piece together information and, and they rarely get you at a point of absolute knowledge about a problem. But I'm, I'm a huge fan of biopsies, whether they can be done endobronchially, if the lesion's fairly central or has a, a so-called airway sign where there's a little airway in it, we'll, we'll send those patients for endobronchial biopsy. Um, but, the, but the others the more peripheral ones are the ones that don't have an associated airway. Um, we talk to the, the interventional radiologists and see if they can get percutaneous biopsies of those. So I'm a big fan of, of biopsies. I guess part of what I'm trying to get at with that question is, you know, the the situation where you perhaps don't have a respirol or, you know, for, for, for example, you don't have a thoracic surgeon at your hospital, but you do have an interventional radiologist who could, who says, well, I can bio, biopsy this for you. Uh, you know, do do you think every lesion needs to have a you know a trained pair of eyes from either, let's say, a, a, tr a experienced res respirologist or an experienced thoracic surgeon to look at it before you make that decision? Because, uh, you know, the the one worry I would have is not so much about the complications, but sometimes about, you know, the rate of uh, false negatives and, and and things like that. Do you, do you have any comments about that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I I think. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a good way of tempering my comment. I think the decision to order the biopsy, 
does need to be done in the context of, of the global picture of what the nodule looks like and, and where you think the story's headed. Um, and so, because there is, there is a fair amount of subtlety to the interpretation and, and as, you, as you suggest, the, the non-diagnostic biopsy, the inconclusive biopsy, um, how do you interpret that? And if you really read the detailed report of the path, the path report, is, is there other information there that, that suggests this is a benign lesion or things of that nature? So I guess what I would say is probably a, a good strategy to speak to the thoracic surgeon or the respirologist if you're contemplating ordering the biopsy, um, not because it's inappropriate, but it, it may just not be needed at that moment in time, or there, there could be other options. I guess the, the next uh, logical question to ask you is, when do you embark on surgery for these these nodules? And when, when you know, increasingly it seems like wedge resections are, are being used. Is there ever a situation where, you know, off the hop, and again, this might be a, a, too big of a question for for our podcast, but are there scenarios where you know that, you know, this person's going to need a lobectomy off the hop? How do you sort of think about that in, in your mind uh, as to who gets surgery and, and what type of surgery? Yeah, that, I mean, you're right. It sort of is getting closer to the heart of how we make our decisions in the office. I, I would say that in general terms, typically surgery is used for obviously resection of a biopsy proven cancer, which is, I would say, the most common scenario. Um, rarely for a non-diagnostic biopsy, as you've just alluded to. Um, occasionally, if there's just such significant patient concern that observation is just too unappealing, you know, and the patient's just not prepared to watch and come back in a few months, they just can't, you know, live a normal quality of life with this nodule that has them concerned. Um, or occasionally, um, you know, the nodule is just either in too challenging of a place to biopsy, which is fairly rare, or it's just such a compelling story based on the CT scan, the PET scan, the patient's history, that, that you're comfortable enough to just embark upon surgical resection. So to your point, you know, you're absolutely right. There, there is a trend towards sublobar resections or wedge resections or segmentectomies that seems to have absolutely happened in thoracic surgery, despite really no randomized evidence to support that. Um, and, and so, um, it, you know, occasionally the, the diagnostic VATS wedge resections, absolutely appropriate procedure to perform to somebody for both diagnostic and therapeutic purposes. Um, I think even a large portion of those could potentially be avoided with a, a preoperative biopsy. But um, certainly if you're looking at, at a more dangerous operation, um, like a lobectomy or something like that, I personally feel a little bit more comfortable when I know what the pathology is that I'm contending with. And so that, that's, I think that's probably a little bit more my personal take on it. You know, Colin, it's been very interesting listening to your, your masterclass here on, on pulmonary surgery and, and nodules. There's a lot of overlap and a lot of similarities, as I'm learning today from you, between you know, your, your world and, and my world with regard to liver surgery. You could, you could really you know, cheat a lot of your comments over to the, the liver side of things as well. 
I'm uh, yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I, but it's but it's interesting. Um, you know, I was in particular curious if you would touch on which patients do you generally assess as good candidates for MIS techniques versus traditional open techniques, just in general. Sure. Um, I, I would say that um, things have really shifted in a fairly rapid period of time towards the vast majority of lung resections being performed minimally invasively these days uh, across most of North America. Um, you know, so, you know, the question often is why can't we do this minimally invasively that we wrestle up against? And, and I still think there's, you know, I certainly have, have pushed too far in at times for, I've done cases which I wish I would have done open. There's other ones where I've done them open. I thought, geez, I probably could have done that laparoscopically or sorry, thoracoscopically. Um, so, so for me personally, um, at this moment in time, I I still think um, an open resection is appropriate for for the larger tumors, mostly just because um, they're a challenge to extrude out of the chest wall at the end of the case and. There's just, a, for me personally, there's a fairly close correlation between the larger the tumor, the more difficult the resection is, even remote from the tumor. So the bigger tumors tend to have more of this desmoplastic change in the hilum. Um, they're harder to expose. Uh, the retraction forces required are just that much greater, and therefore the pull on the arteries is a little bit harder. Um, so, so the size of the tumor is probably the big one for me. It's centrality. Like if I think it's going to be fairly tight on the adjacent lobes or the central airways. Um, despite really superb visualization thoracoscopically, it's still sometimes challenging to know uh, how close the nodule or the mass is to the ongoing pulmonary artery to the remaining lung or to the ongoing airways. And so, so for the more central lesions, I think they just get done much tidier and safe, more safely. And, and, and with better margins open. And so I, I'm fairly liberal at, at doing those open these days, even though I, I absolutely, I think a lot of them could be done bad, but I, I don't always think that's the best uh, you know result for the patient. So there's that kind of trade-off too, not so much with what's possible, but what's best. Um, and then, and then lastly, just if I, if I think there's, um, you know, a risk of doing more than a lobectomy, for example, um, there's a lot of places uh, that have uh, published on, minimum invasive pneumonectomies or minimum invasive bilobectomies. I've even done some of them. Um, and I actually think technically they're not a huge stretch beyond a standard minimum invasive operation. But I think, again, just a, touching on what I just hinted at, you know, there comes a, a limitation where I think it's, it's not necessarily appropriate. Like I, I, I think if you're, if you're doing a pneumonectomy in 2020, you probably have a fairly, angry looking large central tumor. And, and that has implications for, you know, the safety of resection. And it certainly has implications for what kind of margins you're going to possibly be able to obtain. And so uh, even if I can do the dissection and put the staplers in thoracoscopically, I, I don't think that's best done. That's for, for me right now, but, but there's others in the world who would argue with that. So those are, those are my kind of criteria at the moment. You know, maybe I'd, like to bring it around to, to livers again as a, as a bias. And, mm -hmm. 
you know, one of the one of the messages that I think we've been propagating for almost 10 years now, certainly in Canada, is that really anybody that has a colorectal liver metastasis should probably be assessed by a liver surgeon uh, in a multidisciplinary manner. But um, there's no question that there's there's liver nets out there that could be resected and could be treated more aggressively for sure with significant patient uh, outcomes uh, in terms of improvement than are probably getting to to a lot of these centers. And I think that that landscape is getting better, you know, by the year for sure. For our community general surgeons that that don't have the privilege of working with you and your group and, and these big quaternary facilities, who shouldn't they refer? Is it a similar uh, discussion, sort of send anybody, or or is there a, a short list of take-home pearls that that they can safely um, um, not refer to a service like yours or maybe an interventional pulmonology service. Oh, yeah, I, I, I feel that same shift towards multidisciplinary and expert level evaluation for an increasing number of the things we see. Um, you know, esophageal cancers for sure, lung cancers more and more. Um, and it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because I think the more that we do the the trickier it is for the uh, the uh, the community surgeons, for example, to to weigh in on things because they don't just see it as much as they used to, perhaps. But so so I would say, particularly in the era of <laughs> telemedicine, phone consults, and and what we've gotten more comfortable with in COVID, there's not much that shouldn't be referred, and I mean that because it doesn't even necessarily mean the patient has to drive into town. Um, I would say, you know the the patient that has really poor performance status, often, um, you know, the specific diagnosis and the evaluation isn't quite as, as relevant, you know, than, than the really high functioning patient. I would say um, to, to our comment conversation earlier, that these tiny little pulmonary nodules that are getting picked up on, you know, every third scan, I think do create a burden of potentially unhelpful work. I, I just, the challenge Chaz, I, I don't have a nice algorithm for saying, don't worry about this one, don't worry about that one. I would say that if they're less than, than five millimeters in size, they probably don't need a lot of, of, of worry. And I think we've protocolized the radiology well enough that we've done a good job of, of triaging the ones that, that need to be seen. But, um, I'm struggling to come up with a, a, a list for you of, of things that don't make a good referral. Uh, like I, it's pretty rare that I sit there and think this is a terrible referral. I shouldn't have been like, just even if it's, if it's simple and straightforward for me, it's pretty hard to come up with a, a list of things that I think we don't need to see. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.